Welcome to the Behavioral Grooves Grooving Session for Melina Palmer. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. In this episode, Kurt and I are grooving on a conversation we had with the author of What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You, Unlocking Consumer Decisions with the Science of Behavioral Economics. Now, if you want to hear our complete conversation with Melina, check out the previous episode for that discussion in its entirety. Our conversation delivered some outstanding insights into understanding how behavioral science can help people better understand what our customers can't tell us. So let's discuss what we talked about with Melina, have a free-flowing conversation, Tim, and maybe have a conversation about whatever else comes into our unknowing minds. I'm there. I'm there. We know so little about our minds and how we make decisions. That's that's perfect. We we can't tell. We can't answer the question, what do you want? We're not yeah. very good at it. Yeah. It's this idea that, uh, again, thinking about the classical economics and the idea that our preferences are well-defined and well-understood yeah. by us is kind of a fallacy. And, totally. and it's been proven over and over again with preference reversal and various different other aspects. So, yes. Yeah, so I think we we don't really know what we really want. And sometimes we need somebody to help us. Is that is that is that a fair game? <laughs> well, this is where context comes into play. You know, okay. for, for you know for me uh, and uh, you know environment and uh, the the situation. And I think about you know save more tomorrow or signing up for a four hundred one k. Like you know increase the signups just by changing the default. Yeah. So if our preferences were so well defined, it wouldn't matter what the default is. Yeah. But in fact, it does matter. Yeah. All right. So we, okay, let's get back. Let's go back to we, Melina. Melina. So first <laughs> off, Melina is a fantastic, wonderful book. Uh, really think that if you're interested in marketing and applying some of these insights, it's great. It's full of practical applications. And, yeah. you know, she has a great podcast and I appreciate just her friendship. It's It's what I love about the behavioral science community is how outgoing and giving and kind everybody is and everybody is supportive and helpful and hey let's bring you in because i think you might get something out of this and we might gain something from having that conversation with you and i think that's fantastic agreed i have nothing to add to that cuz that is so that's perfectly well said so would you say that you want more of that kurt i do want more of that type of interaction well, how does that happen, Tim? How does how does getting more of that interaction? Why do I want more of that interaction? Okay, well, fortunately, we're on the same page here. It's dopamine, right? What? And our, yeah, I love the conversation that we had with Melina about dopamine. It was it, she she focuses in on something that we think is really important, and I think that we should talk about that. I think we should groove on it. Yeah. So one of the things that. I hear often, and not necessarily from people in the behavioral science community, but from other people who may not be as uh, close to this as we are, is this idea that dopamine is this happy drug, that dopamine release makes us happy and makes us joyful and different things. But in reality, it's really a drug about wanting and anticipation. Mm -hmm. Kelly McGonigal, PhD, I think she's at Stanford. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. I think in the uh, she's written a number of yeah. books. Um, but she, and I quote, she says, dopamine's primary function is to make us pursue happiness, not to make us happy. And I think that's a really good way of thinking about dopamine. It's this 
pursuing of happiness, pursuing of reward, as opposed to the joy and happiness that we get from actually taking that in. Yeah, I, I think it was more than 20 years ago, Kent Barrage uh, wrote about this, where he said that that dopamine systems are about wanting. They are wanting systems. They are not liking systems for for learning new likes. It's about the wanting. Yeah. And, and I think that this is an important distinction for us to point out because we tend to think about dopamine as the as the payoff it's the it's the end result of what happens when really the dopamine is being released in the anticipation and that's great right so let's use that yeah and there's an evolutionary component and and robert sapolsky talks about that it's about hey dopamine is what drives our goal directed behavior and if we didn't have it we wouldn't necessarily get things done it would be why do we why do I want to walk that 10 feet to go pick that banana? No, I'm not going to do that because even though I like that banana, I don't have the want to go and do that. And that I think yeah. is really key as we think about this. And so one of the things that Melina talked about is the aspect of lotteries and how when you have a lottery perspective, when it's not a every 10 pushes on the lever and I'm going to get a reward. When it's, oh, I push on the lever twice and I get a reward, or I push on the lever 25 times and I get a reward. That aspect of uncertainty increases dopamine release levels. And that is a, it's an interesting trick as we think about that in re relationship to what companies can do in order to, you know, tap into that dopamine release and pathway as well as just a general interesting piece when we think about, well, that's how come Las Vegas is Las Vegas. Yeah, this goes back to Skinner, right? Where we get back to the variable reward ratio, uh, where the, the the reward is doled out on a variable ratio basis rather than just every time or every third time. It's sometimes it's every third time, sometimes it's every fifth time, sometimes it's every second time. And I'm surprised at the number of times that I don't see marketers using this. Yeah. That that they're they're trying to sort of capitalize on this, just do it at the right time, which is an important aspect of behavior change and influence, uh, putting out an offer at the right time. But I think that they often miss on the variable ratio aspect of it. And when we're not using variable ratio, when we're using an every time kind of thing, then we become immune to it. We start right. to lose the, that wanting aspect of it. Well, and interestingly, and Sapolsky talks about this, he talks about this idea that Hey, when uncertainty is related to dopamine release, it's focusing on the mesocortical area uh, pathway, the, the prefrontal cortex, basically, of, of our brain. Whereas when uncertainty isn't involved with dopamine release, it's the mesolimbic pathways, which is really the midbrain area of, right. of, our, of our brain. And, and what he talks, takes from that is this concept that hey, uncertainty is more cognitively complex. It's in those mesocortical areas of our brain, which are our higher functioning, those, those different areas. And so what you just said, this idea that, hey, if it becomes routine and everything, that there's not as much cognitive complexity in that and that it becomes rote and, and we don't have the release. But also, how much does that wanting kind of get take over and take attention? and you know really capture us and if it's in that prefrontal cortex area 
it could imply that there's some significant aspects of that. So I thought that was really cool. I thought that was an interesting piece. And again, as you said, I don't think people are utilizing this. Businesses aren't using this as much as they could. And we do a lot of work around incentives and, and different pieces of that. And this is one of those things that companies could use. Now, I will use a word of caution here because United Airlines did this whole thing a few years ago where they took this uh, reward, this incentive that they had for pretty much all of their everyday, the, the baggage handlers, the people that are at the, at the gate, all of those folks. And based on the amount of time that they would get on flight or on time flights off, they earned a reward. And sometimes that was a couple hundred dollars, sometimes might be a couple thousand dollars, but it was a pretty, pretty standard thing. And everybody that participated got it. And they changed that. And they instead said, we're going to give away a hundred thousand dollars and maybe some Mercedes Benz. And forgive me if I'm off on the exact. And there was a massive backlash to that. And so what they were doing was doing a lottery. Basically, the number of times yeah. that you got a plane off in your work thing, you got basically a ticket that entered into this, this larger piece. Um, but there was a backlash on that, and rightfully so, because of the way that it is. So you have to always take into consideration the context as we talk about. You have to understand the culture. You have to understand what are the the ramifications that can happen from this. So just my little caution on that. That's a great story, Kurt. And, and there's two things that I want to, want to add to that. One is in situations where there is a sense of do this, get that, where if I'm going to work really hard and get the plane out on time with an on-time uh, departure from the gate, I'm going to expect something. And when and when you turn it into a lottery, now you've taken away that, wait a minute, I did this. I worked extra hard. I got the whole crew going. We did it. And now you're saying I just have a chance at winning a reward? That ends up depleting motivation. And you, both of us have seen this in many, many very poorly designed incentive programs. So when when you're telling people, in exchange for doing this, you're going to be you know, entered into a lottery that that could actually be demotivational. It so, could be. Uh, so, so be concerned about that. The second thing I want to say is for those of you who are listening at like 1.5 or 2.0 or 2.5, you're going super fast. I want to say this really slow because it's cognitively complex. That could you just just say that one more time, Kurt? Because that is such an important part of this whole discussion. Cognitively <laughs> complex. I said it slow too. So for all those people who listen fast, so. <laughs> Okay. Um, and it is cognitively complex. This whole, this whole topic is cognitively complex. One more thing on dopamine that I think is key. This idea of dopamine, and again, dopamine is released when we're anticipating a reward and we're getting close to that. Actually, dopamine is released also when we get a reward yep. um, that is unanticipated. So that, that we're surprised at. So if, in other words, if I'm a rat and I've been, I get a one sugar cube every third time I press the lever, all right, that doesn't necessarily release my dopamine. But if all of a sudden I get three sugar cubes when I, on that third press, dopamine is released. And they've done some really interesting research, again, with, with uh, rats where 
They said they trained some of them to expect two units of reward, i.e. two sugar cubes or whatever, the, the food pellets that they use for, for that reward. And they trained others to expect 20 units of reward. And when they measured the dopamine release, when they, they doubled those, that was so in other words, the, the rats that were uh, trained to anticipate two units got four and the rats that were trained to, to get 20 units got 40. The dopamine release was the equivalent. So the, the spike in dopamine was equivalent. So it isn't about the absolute value of that change. It is about the relative value of that change, which is really interesting because if you take that to its next level, it doesn't mean that you have to offer a $100,000 reward. What it means is if you're, if you're expecting a $5 gift card and you get a $10 gift card, that's a similar thing as expecting $5,000 and getting $10,000. Yeah. It also means that if your income is $50,000, and you get a $5,000 reward, that's a significantly different uh, percentage, different ratio than if you make $200,000 and you get a $5,000 reward. That's right? a fantastic, that's, yeah. We, uh, you know, Scott Jeffrey has said this for a long time that we are percentage wise and absolute foolish. Yeah. You know, so yeah, absolutely. All right, Tim. So applications of this, what, what can, what can people do? Well, you know, novelty is important, right? Let's think about how, what are the pathways to, in our, in our brains to get people's dopamine uh, going on? Novelty is, is what comes to my mind. Rewards, money, prizes, all those kinds of things, uh, is, especially when they're uh, unanticipated can be fantastic. Recognition is a, is a way to uh, actually provide people with that sense of, of novelty. Like, oh, I wasn't expecting this. Uh, when it when it happens after the fact, a good business that's a that's a good business application. So thinking about that from a marketing perspective, it's not just this idea of utilizing a lottery, but sometimes it's surprising. It's that novelty aspect because again, you're going to tap into some of those dopamine pathways and get people wanting and driving the behaviors that that you definitely want. I think there's also aspects of thinking about how do you tap into and activate these dopamine pathways for people. And that is a key piece if you're internally working with an organization, if you're working with consumers of that organization, if you're working with your family, if you're working with friends, you know, what are you doing that is tapping into these things that are going to release dopamine? And let's just be thoughtful of that. And in addition, then, is there any ethical concern, right? We come back to this. If I understand I think it was, again, Kelly McConaughey that said, you know, it says that dopamine hijacks your attention and yeah. your mind becomes fixated on obtaining. And so if you are, you know, hacking people's dopamine release and getting that release, so you're hijacking their attention. Well, you know, there's an ethical concern there for me. So I think yep. that is a key piece that from an application perspective, just make sure that you're doing this ethically. And again, going back to that United ex, you know, example, hey, be aware of the unintended consequences if you're trying to <laughs> apply a lottery when it should be something that is more uh, mundane and driving or, in a reward yeah. for the effort that people are putting in. Absolutely. Okay, so what else do you want to groove on, Kurt? Well, let's talk about something we never, ever talk about. Let's talk about priming. <laughs> 
didn't see that one coming. I kind of <laughs> thought you were going into context, but but priming is was central to uh, was not central, but but certainly we did talk about priming with Melina. So that's um, you know that that is a, a pretty key thing too. To, to bring up here. Absolutely. Yeah. She talked about it's a foundational concept within yeah. the book and within marketing and, and various different pieces. And to that point, I think it's one of those most underutilized aspects when people are trying to do influence, when you're trying to, whether it's your messaging, whether it's a marketing campaign, whether it's talking to your employees and working with your employees on doing different things, priming is key and is often not paid attention to enough in my mind. Yeah. So that's interesting. Where, where, where do you think, uh, are, are businesses missing out on this? Do you think when it comes to either communication internally, externally, where, where, where do you see the, the miss? So I think, again, we talked with Gary Latham, you know, a number of months ago now, and he talked about one of the research studies that he did where they had the picture of the woman running through the ticker the tape finish line, line finish yeah. line. And as a as a picture on just some normal everyday things that people in a call center got. And those people that had the information with the picture had a 40 percent increase in donations when they were calling than the people who didn't. And everything else was the same. Same thing. He talked about this experiment he did with just changing 12 words in a presidential a president of a company's email to having these be achievement words. And again, at the end of the week, when they measured performance, the people that got the memo that or the email that had 12 achievement words in it performed much better than those who did not. And it's those small things. And Melina talks about this. It's the idea of what's the visual that you're using. And are you just using a stock photograph or are you really paying attention to what that visual is conveying? Because it can convey a number of different things at a subconscious level that actually can influence how people perceive and then subsequently behave. Yeah, I, I remember preparing a an internal piece uh, of communication, a training project for uh, for different countries. So I'm U.S. based, and I was working on a training program that was going out to Australia, uh, and then it was going to be. Uh, modified slightly for uh, Southeast Asia, for the sort of sort of for the Singapore, Bali area. And after we created it, we thought we were being very culturally sensitive. And it got to Australia, and they said, "No one's going to care about this." I'm like, "What do you mean, no one's going to care about this? This is this was what you requested." And they said, "Yeah, but the trees in the pictures aren't Australian trees." It's like that's enough to to throw the whole thing off. And it was just an instant you know, uh, recognition that, that, that was, that was just not working. Um, I was also thinking that, uh, that regarding brand strategy, thinking about Matthew Wilcox, priming could be something that you could use to get you to, to get consumers to feel like they made the best decision. Again, kind of thinking about our discussion with Matthew Wilcox, it doesn't always have to be a, a bang you on the head with, yes, you made the right decision. It can just be a, the, these subtle reminders uh, that are out there in the marketplace to to appeal to our confirmation bias. And priming could be used to uh, to appeal to that as well. Yeah, I think that's a great insight. When we think about priming, the other thing that we don't necessarily take into consideration, I mean, Melina talked about paying attention to the small things and testing and doing all that. But one of the things that we don't necessarily take into consideration, particularly I think from marketing and any kind of consumer-driven pieces, is how is our message or our product, where is it being consumed? 
and what is the context that that is happening in. For instance, if you took a billboard type advertisement and all right, that's great. Here it is. But you put it in a sports arena, right? Or you put it in a subway or you have it out along a busy highway or maybe you have it downtown on, you know, like in Times Square. All of those are going to have different contexts and people are going to show up to read that billboard in a different way. In a sports arena, you might be hyped. Your team's doing good or maybe your team's doing bad. So you're in a really bad mood. So that's going to influence how that billboard is perceived. You know, in a subway, is it clean, nice subway? Is it a dirty, grungy subway? Is that going to make an impact, right? Um, you know, are you driving by super fast? Are you stuck in traffic? Uh, you know, are you going up to the cabin on the highway and you see this thing and you're in a good mood? All of those factors. And we don't pay enough attention to the context within which our messages are getting consumed. Bravo. I, I, one of my favorite billboards along uh, a freeway in a urban center is the, is the big billboard that's right next to the apartment building that says, if you lived here, you would be home now. Yeah, that's that's a fantastic message as far as I'm concerned. That that's really really well done. Okay, so so let's talk about applications for a minute, okay. right? So it's really important to be purposeful about the words, the images, the backgrounds, the context that you're that you're do that you're using for your marketing and social media. You need to be thinking about this stuff and uh, the messaging because the words that we use, the images that we use, matter a lot. Yeah, they imply certain things and they they activate or pre-activate certain neural pathways in our brain that will lead it down a different direction depending upon what you're activating. So the other piece, and I think Melina talked about this, is run experiments with different messages, different images, different locations, and test those applications of this and make sure that you, again, not just saying, oh, we'll use a loss message because we know that loss messages do X. And that is, you know, we're priming them to think about, you know, avoiding a loss. Well, that may work in certain situations, but make sure you test that. Make sure you test that and think about that. And then finally, as you, I think you mentioned this, the context, right? Make sure you think about the context within the people are consuming your marketing, your message, your product, and how does that environment impact how people interact with your message? Absolutely. Okay. Should we wrap it up? Go for it. Okay. So first you want to make sure that you understand how dopamine is being released or not released by your messages, images, actions, right? Because both can happen. Be purposeful, be intentional in how you design these things to tap into that anticipatory power of, of dopamine. Um, and then, and second, understand how priming works. Uh, if, if you're purposeful in your messaging, understand that priming messages and the words that you use, the images that you use, think about how, what they're conveying, think about the context in which the message is being received and, and take those into account. So finally, if you want a practical guide to help you apply behavioral economics principles into your marketing, well, go buy this book. Melinda's book is fantastic at giving very practical advice and very, very specific actions that you can take with these concepts. So that ends this Behavioral Grooves grooving session. And as always, we thank you for listening. So tune in for our next episode where we speak with Johannes Hasselhofer. Did I say that right? Mr. Mr. Hasselhofer. Hasselhofer. I am horrible. I am horrible with pronunciation <laughs> of names. And you know this, which is why you always get the hard ones. <laughs> yeah. 
you know, I, I can say Molina Palmer. That that that's about the most extensive name that I can get to. But you know, that's how it goes. All but right. we've got Johannes Haushofer coming up, and it's going to be great. Yeah, he's the founder of the Bucera Center in Nairobi, Kenya. Uh, we're going to talk to him about poverty, stress, and what we can do about them. So we really, truly appreciate you spending time with us, and we hope that you've learned something and maybe had a little bit of fun. So now, go out and find your group. 